But how do you get angry when you never let yourself feel it, when it's not okay to be angry? With anger, I was scared that it was a bottomless pit. So if I let myself get angry, there'd be no end to it. And then, you know, like not knowing where it would lead. And then I had this big fear of like ruining everything. Everyone gets angry. And most people have learned to hide their anger, often at great costs. There's a lot of baggage we carry around the emotion of anger. These burdens come from our faith traditions, culture, family of origin, work, school, and inform your relationship with anger today. Now, if you present male and white, your anger is more accepted, even celebrated. Otherwise, we are taught to hide our anger and shut it down when it arises in order to protect from being misunderstood and seen in a negative light. Toxic and degrading terms are used to describe women and women of color who dare to show their truth through their anger. Contrary to what many of us have been taught, anger is an important and valuable emotion. But the backlash from feeling and expressing our anger is making us sick and tired. We are constantly navigating the many rules of what is okay and what is not okay when it comes to expressing, let alone feeling anger. And in the process, anger can slowly start to consume us. And when that anger overwhelms and it feels like it, it feels like it owns us, even as we're doing our best not to show it. But you can own your anger instead of your anger owning you. You can respect its intent to inform and protect you. But to own your anger, you've got to trust yourself. You've got to be able to hang out with the anger you feel so you can identify where it's coming from and what it's trying to tell you. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Anger is a powerful emotion that provides important data. It can take over like a rush of energy that consumes and overpowers. We all have our own experiences that influence our relationship with anger. Some of you may fear your anger, or maybe you enjoy blending with your anger. Now, feeling your anger is one thing, but how you respond to it's another. And I often conflated the two, believing if I felt my anger, there was no stopgap and I was going to respond in ways I could not control, only furthering the legacy of toxic anger I was taught. I grew up in a home where anger exploded like a tsunami, taking out everything in its path. There was no restraint and it was justified and blamed on others. The message was, don't get me angry or else. And the consequences of activating anger in my family often left bruises and the burden of shame from public humiliation. I felt the impact of people offloading their anger onto me and I'm still navigating the echoes of those experiences. Growing up in a home where the anger was more toxic, I leaned into the aspect of my anger that was fueled by what I witnessed in the world around me. I loved a good debate and studied them on repeat. The energy around politics drew me in. I immersed myself in the stories of those who fought for social justice and channeled their pain into movements. I studied journalism and wordsmiths in undergrad, and my first job out of school was working in Washington, D.C. for a senator. It felt cathartic to release my anger about the injustices and wrongs I saw in society. I believed it was a socially acceptable way to express anger. Until it wasn't. 
I started picking up the cues that expressing anger of any kind was not professional or ladylike, whatever the heck that means, or even welcome at all. Now, I wanted to belong. I also wanted to stand for what was right. But I noticed how people shrunk back and did not want to take sides when conflict arose, leaving me feel more alone and, well, angry. I started to hate the parts of me that cared and felt deeply. And I was looking for role models, especially women who navigated power, success, and conflict in ways that were not toxic. (sighs) This search left me wanting for a long time, as all I saw were examples of fake it, hide it, or use anger as a power over tool. Now, when I went to graduate school and began studying the brain, the body, and emotions, I began to get a better understanding of the complexity of anger and the trauma caused by toxic anger. John Gottman, among others, identified anger as a secondary emotion, asking us to look behind our anger to see what is fueling it. And I think this is helpful in connecting the dots around your anger. But I often saw how we bypassed anger too quickly, missing the importance of witnessing and acknowledging anger before going into analyzing it or moving it aside. Neuroscientist Yak Pinksep studied emotions in the brain and discovered that rage is one of the primary emotions humans feel. And this rage was fueled by protection. This research further supported my appreciation for anger and the desire to understand its purpose before vilifying it. I finally got a better handle on my own anger and the anger of others when I discovered internal family systems, one of the key frameworks I use in both my clinical work and my leadership development work. Through IFS, I could see anger on a deeper level and approach it with more compassion. I would own my anger and lead with it instead of letting it overpower me. And I did the work to unburden the pain so I could do just that. Now, if you'd like to learn more about IFS and other ways we can use it to better understand ourselves, check out my interviews with Richard Schwartz, founder of IFS, or Frank Anderson, who's a senior lead trainer for IFS, or even with Sunny Brown, who's a graphic artist and a level three trained IFS practitioner. Those are all great examples of how leaders are using this incredible model to heal and lead their emotions. Now, my guest today is no stranger to rumbling with her anger and leaning on IFS to help her better lead her emotions and her responses to them. Sasha Mardo is a cartoonist, author of the graphic novel series Sky in Stereo, and many webcomics about therapy. Born in Manchester, England, Sasha now lives in St. Louis, Missouri with her husband, daughter, and two cats. She has been making comics for 20 years, and after entering therapy when she turned 40, began drawing the healing process and eventually sharing them online. Bringing readers with her on her therapy journey has changed everything for both Sasha and those of us who get to experience the profound impact of her work, making the world feel a little less lonely as we navigate the vulnerability of being human. Now pay attention to the process Sasha went through in sharing her therapy experiences and personal sketches with the world. Notice how Sasha walks us through one of her comics where she rumbles with her anger towards herself and her mom. It's a good one. (laughs) And listen for how this process of sharing her traumas and difficult family experiences decreased the shame she felt because she spoke her shame. Now, 
I have a content alert for you. There is a mention in this conversation of sexual assault. We do not go into detail, but it is mentioned in reference to a family member of Sasha's around the 27 minute mark. Take care and don't push through if it's too much. Now, please welcome Sasha to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Sasha, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled you made the time to connect. I first heard about you through the internal Mm -hmm. family systems community, and I've been following your work and knew I had to have you on the show. So I'd love to start talking about the time around you releasing your first graphic novel. You're an Mm -hmm. artist, and it was also a time when you turned 40. And you had an awareness, such as those milestone birthdays give us, you had an awareness that things were a bit off in your life. And on the surface, you have shared that everything was good, but deeper down, you knew things were brewing. So I'd love for you to walk us through what you were noticing and what was brought up for you. Sure. So as you said, um, when I turned 40 in 2015, um, my first graphic novel came out. I did a movie project that year. I did comics for a film. It was like a really landmark year in many ways. And I'd always been, I've always been an anxious kind of person. And I figured that that was my genetic destiny because my mother is a very kind of like nervous, kind of placating people pleaser kind of person. And my grandmother was, she suffered from her nerves and she spent like the last years of her life, like withdrawing from people, you know. And so I've known that I've got this tendency in my family for anxiety and I'd always kind of have it had it a bit but as I turned 40 it was just increasing and increasing and especially heading into 2016 with Donald Trump winning the election I really felt that my anxiety was like more than I could handle and in addition to that it was also giving me stress acne that just like wasn't going away and so I think had it not been for the acne maybe I wouldn't have pursued therapy but that was the turning point I couldn't bear having like you know, like being covered in zits. So yeah, it's my skin to thank that I entered therapy, I think. And so what were your fears or judgments you had around therapy or even asking for help? And what's what's changed for you around that? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you can tell I'm British and it's in Britain, we don't really have a, a tradition of like seeking help. You go to the pub, you don't go to a therapist, you know? And so there was a, <laughs> there was a kind of cultural um prejudice holding me back for sure and secondly I just didn't really see how therapy would help I didn't see how talking about my problems or my imagined problems with somebody for like $150 an hour I just did not see how that was going to make a difference Um, but when I saw an acupuncturist for my skin and he kind of connected the dots so to speak about the uh, anxiety and everything else that was going on in my life and he very gently recommended therapy to me and so it was on his recommendation that I found my therapist, who I call Frank in my comics, it's not his real name. But yeah, so that, that was the start of the journey for me. And just the fact that, you know, with with Donald Trump winning the election, suddenly anxiety was everywhere. And there was like a whole social level of not knowing what was going to happen as well. I just felt like I couldn't continue kind of pushing it all down. I really had to see if therapy would help. It was like my last shot, really. So tell me about, though, the inspiration of taking what you were experiencing in therapy to the world. Okay, so Rebecca, this was never the plan. I've always kind of like kept sketchbooks and kind of like kept a sketchbook diary of my life. And so a lot of what was happening in therapy, I, you know, I would get the train home as well. So I would, on the train journey home from therapy, I would like have my sketchbook with me. And I would write down all the things that I remembered my therapist saying, and like all the stuff that happened and came up for me. 
And I would just kind of chronicle it that way. And then when we started doing IFS, it was such a great, cartooning was such a great tool to actually like, draw what was going on inside me so I could represent my parts as, you know, as drawings, as figures, like images of me and using different colors and that kind of thing. And it really helped. It kind of like really helped organize what was happening like in session and in my, you know, my self-work as well. It was like a great way of like recording that and kind of processing it. And it really helped me kind of understand it, it helped me understand the model as well, you know, just by seeing it in pictures. Yes. And I think this has helped so many other people not only understand the IFS model, but to feel less alone and to feel mm-hmm. just that common humanity of, oh, I struggle with that. Oh, and just to see your inner process of that. It's been such a gift. And these comics have become so beloved by so many. Mm-hmm. How how has that warm response to your work impacted you? Wow, it's been um, it's been really incredible, and I didn't know what to expect when I shared the very first comics. You know, I mean, I had a lot of anxiety about sharing these comics, and I did it very gradually. But the re- the response was actually really warm, and it was one of like this was my story too. You know, people tell me they felt seen, that they felt like kind of understood. And it had an effect on me. It's like, you know, I grew up feeling like I could never speak about my childhood. You know, it was something shameful to hide. And suddenly people were telling me that, you know, this is how I felt too. And it really made me feel like less less of a freak, you know, for want of a better word. So it really kind of gave me a feeling of um, of being seen. People would also tell me things as well that would help me go deeper with my work. I don't want to get too specific, but I would get messages and comments from people, especially when I've shared some of the most stuff that came with a trigger warning. But people have like messaged me and said, this was me too, and this is exactly how I felt. And it's not even something from me. It's something from a member of my family around me that I'm showing. And they were like helping me understand the reaction of somebody else, helping me understand the behavior of someone else. And it sent me even deeper with my work, you know, like it's, it's kind of brought up things and I've had to like deal with those trailheads and actually, you know, like pause, pause sharing the work and do a little bit of work around it to, to really kind of like understand what was going on. I had a very complicated like family dynamic and allowing people to read it and see it has helped me, it's helped me kind of grow in empathy towards people involved in that story you know it wasn't just about me it became about my family's story as well yeah isn't that the truth though right we Mm. we exist in systems you said a couple things that I want to circle back to briefly the first was there was a lot of shame about sharing your story especially Mm -hmm. you know a childhood story and why would anyone want to hear about it and the fear of people hearing about here so tell me about the leap from you know, even just getting to therapy where you'd push that off for a while mm-hmm. to then sharing that if there, how did you navigate the shame and the fear around that since it was so oh, strong? Yeah, I, I kind of made more comics about it. <laughs> it became like a <laughs> cycle of like something came up and I was feeling like, you know, very, very kind of like triggered. Like, am I really going to share this? Like people won't like me if they know this about me. And actually when I did share it, the response was not the judgment I was fearing. It was empathy and warmth and understanding like so many, so many good things came my way because of this work. But then I would actually share work about the fear of sharing the work, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, like a, like, you know, like Dick Schwartz talks about, you know, like all the parts are like a garlic clove. And it's like, it's true. Like each part is kind of surrounded by a cluster of other parts. And I just gradually 
removed that taboo from myself. I actually wrote myself a permission slip at one point saying, you know, I give myself permission to just like draw this and explore it. In addition, I also got permission from family members before I shared stuff that involved them, you know. But when it came to myself, giving myself permission to actually, A, do this work and and just draw it for myself. And then giving myself like another permission. It's like, I can share this with the world and it's like, I'm going to be okay with it, you know. Or if I'm not going to be okay with it, that's another whole trailhead that I will do to be okay with it, you know. It's curiosity. There's a cartoonist I'm thinking of, Robert Crumb, who... He draws, I mean, he's from the 60s and he drew all these, you know, psychedelic comics and he drew a lot of stuff about sex and sexuality. And he really put himself out there and he drew things that just make me, you know, make me blush. And I kind of think, you know, if Robert Crumb can draw all that stuff about himself, then I can draw about my childhood trauma. Like, why am I, you know, why am I um, acting like these 30-year-old stories, like, have to be locked away forever? It wasn't doing me any good. And in sharing them and drawing them and allowing the lights to sort of, you know, to see them, it's kind of like made me grow in a way. And it's made my my work grow. It's made me a better artist and a bigger artist and a more empathetic person. And that mm. is finding its way into my work, you know. So it's really, I mean, it's been such a gift. You say that, you know, it's my work is kind of like a gift to the world. Well, it's been a gift to me because I've I've got this readership of healed and healing people who are really engaged and really care about what I'm making is I never thought I'd have that you know it's amazing wow. yeah it is amazing I'm so grateful for it because it's so fun to share as a resource to people mm-hmm. also to myself when I'm like oh I needed to see that today I feel less alone thank you how do you now that your work has gotten some popularity how mm-hmm. do you navigate the parts of you that are very aware of others that are wanting to see your work or like, how do you make sure that you're drawing your story and not shifting to drawing for the audience? Does that make sense? It does. This was actually my, th- I had a, you know, a whole conversation with my therapist about this back when I was in therapy, you know, I was very reluctant to be seen as like the IFS cartoonist. I didn't want, you know, like a label mm-hmm. pinned to my work. It's like, it's like, why can't it just be about therapy? Like, but IFS people are honing in on me. I had like lots of Lots of like resistant parts, you know. You know, I got like a really amazing comment last week. I had to take a break from sharing stuff about my dad. It's like I realized there was a lot of like unhealed feelings and things I was discovering about myself. And I was like, I need some space around this work. I can't keep sharing it to a weekly schedule. I just need to take a break. And so I was honest with my my readers. I try and post every Thursday. But I said, you know, this week I just can't do it. I need some time to sort of step back and just absorb all this stuff. It's really painful. And one of the comments um, on Facebook was like, in taking this break, you're kind of showing us how to do the work. <laughs> I was mm. like, wow, thank you. That's, you know, that's amazing. Yeah, because I know a lot of leaders don't feel like they have permission to take breaks, mm. to step back. And I think also a lot of us who consume things where we feel entitled to right, things. Right. And so there's just something about how you show your work and you're modeling it with boundaries and intention and integrity that really is healing on a practical level, literal level with your comics, but also your process. So thank you for sharing that. And the other thing I want to circle back to is you said you you, you do the work, you put, work it through in a comic and then give yourself space. You don't post it right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it depends. And, yeah. Well, some in some of the comics that I've read when I was prepping for an interview, there was sometimes a one to two year gap between right. 
when this was drawn and when this happened. You kind right, of illustrate right. when it happened. And I think in this, yeah, talk a little bit more about your perspective as someone who is an artist and sharing things in, in the online space and with the mm-hmm. world with this sense of urgency. But this is obviously so personal. I, I feel like that working through it first and then you share boundaries so powerful and so forgotten sometimes. How did you come to that? So I, you know, I didn't start therapy and immediately start sharing this work. It took about a year of therapy before I even began sharing my very first comics. Actually, maybe more than a year. I started therapy in 2017. I think I posted my first therapy comics like in 2019. So, you know, almost two years of therapy before I started sharing this work. And I I kind of needed that time. In answer to your question, I was watching an interview with Roxane Gay recently, and she Mm. also like shares, you know, a lot of personal stuff. And she was talking about how the things she shares, things that she's okay with sharing. And there's like a whole world of stuff that people don't have access to. She's still a very private person. And that was that was really helpful to me to hear, you know. She was talking about how as women especially, like people do feel entitled to our story, you know, and setting boundaries for ourselves around that is is super important. And she's absolutely right. And that's what my therapist was very clear with me about as well, you know. It's I'm only sharing this stuff like when I feel comfortable with it. And if I start to feel uncomfortable, I'll take a break, you know. And it's nice that I can be honest with my my readers and just say, yeah, this, this needs more work. This needs more time. I'm still, you, you never really get there. You know, it's not like I'm healed now. And I can share everything. <laughs> it's, like, it's a process and I'm still working on it. I appreciate you saying that. I think there's so much that is pushed out there that says we're supposed to arrive and not be bothered. Right. But if you dare to care and dare to love you're going to be vulnerable to Mm. hurt and heartache. And that's part of the gig. It's part of what we do. And I also love saying there's a lot, you have a body of work that we've never seen. And that's none of our business. (laughs) I've got, yeah, just over in the corner there, I've got what I'm on sketchbook number 34 full of (laughs) diary comics that, yeah, I don't think I'll ever share. I don't know. They'd need redrawing it if any, you know, if I did share them at any rate. But yeah, I mean, it really, like Brené Brown talks about this. I mean, her life is, her her work is her life and her life is a process. It's an ongoing. She's still learning new things, you know, and, and sharing them with her, with her audience. And it comes from a very genuine place. Like she wants to do this work for herself. She wants to kind of understand, you know, herself and be more empathetic and run a company like based on those values. And, you know, I've learned so much from her and just her willingness to kind of keep keep being honest and keep saying, I've not got it all figured out yet because, you know, who does? Yeah. Yeah. She was the one I first heard this from when I think it was one of the first trainings I had with her where she differentiated the difference between personal and private. Mm. And that's something I've held since I met her nine, almost nine years ago is some things are just private. And they're not for public consumption, but I'm going to share things that are personal and I'm going to do that. And what's the place I'm going to share that from? Mm -hmm. And in this very public world, this very consumer consuming versus creating where we consume more than we create. That is such a powerful differentiation and always circle back to our values. And, And speaking of vulnerability, art in itself is very vulnerable to share and you do it for a living and for your self care. So Mm-hmm. Any other key learnings that this sharing this work publicly has taught you? Um, that it can't be the only work I do, and it isn't. I'm also working on a graphic novel, mm-hmm. and it's such a, 
you know, it's such like a different thing. It's fictional characters. I'm having so much fun with it. You have to do stuff for fun as well for yourself. So yeah, that's, that's one takeaway from it. It can't just be healing. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny because for like, while I was in therapy for like three years, all I read, I was so fascinated by therapists and I wanted to know all the things my therapist knew. I just kind of like fell in love with therapy. And I, and so he would give me, you know, he would suggest books for me to read. And, you know, I read like Virginia Satir. I'm like rereading her because she's so. Oh, fantastic. she's amazing. She yeah. is. And you can really see this foundation of IFS in her work. You know, she talks about family systems and, and Dick just like took it inside and Dick Schwartz just like took all that and did it in the inner world as well. It's so incredible. It was a pioneer. She hung she out was. with all these, yeah. all these dudes, all these white dudes. And she was, <laughs> she hung out with these folks that were pioneering systems yeah. and family therapy. And I have great respect for her and love that. I love her so much. I wish she was yeah. like a bestseller. Like I want the world to rediscover Virginia Satir. But anyway, my point was um, I spent three years just reading therapy books. And when I was kind of like coming to the end of that journey <laughs> with my therapist, I decided it's like, maybe I should read other things like maybe I should read like some funny stuff but I started like getting from the library just like autobiography after autobiography of like comedians I thought that would be really like a really nice change of pace right but it turned out like every autobiography by a comedian I would read they would have like these hugely traumatic childhood <laughs> childhoods and that was what prompted them to kind of like to laugh and like pursue comedy like John Cleese's biography he actually married a therapist you know <laughs> so it's like I can't get away from this this is just this is just my destiny to sort of <laughs> <laughs> you had me when you're reading autobiographies of comedians. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. who knew? I didn't. <laughs> had you, did you experience any other kind of therapy before IFS? Did you go to a, a traditional talk therapy therapist before, or did so the therapist that I draw mostly? I had two therapists. Yeah, I started off with a, a guy who I call Frank in the comics, and he's actually. I mean, he does IFS, but he's also he has many hats. You know, he. He does talk therapy mainly, but he has he has a bunch of different skills. I mean, he's very well versed in like family therapy and we'd have good conversations about Virginia City and uh, things like solution focused therapy and um, NLP. He would like bring all these things in it and he felt like a wizard to me. And I would ask him, like, how did you know to ask that? And he would tell me, oh, it's from solution focused therapy. <laughs> and I would go and Google it, you know. So, so yeah, having talk yeah. therapy was like super important as well. How, how do you differentiate talk therapy from the traditional talk therapy from IFS in your experience. I, I know people would love to hear that. It's kind of hard to say in a way because I feel like with my therapist, Frank, he would do talk therapy, but he would be very, he would use parts language in that talk therapy. So it's possible I've never had an experience of talk therapy that was completely divorced from IFS. Like parts work was yes. always kind of in there. Like he would he would get me to speak for a part, you know, rather than from a part. And even in talk therapy, he, you know, he was so, you seem very blended with a part now. So it's like, you're right. I need to kind of unblend from that and give myself a little space. So it was always, IFS was always kind of like part of that talk therapy. Yeah. What a powerful first experience. Uh, yeah, with therapy. I'm so lucky. I love I've it. got a great therapist, like first, first time around. <laughs> I, I want to focus on a comic that you wrote back in February of 2020, okay. <laughs> right before our world shifted. Mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> and, and it was how the small stuff really triggered anger in you. And especially for you, the trailhead uh, was around your mom. Mm -hmm. And I, that just really caught my eye because I hear that from so many people I work with, both clinically and my leadership clients, that 
why do these little things bug me? And they get oh. irritated at themselves. And so I think many people can relate to being bothered that they're bothered right, <laughs> by right. certain things. Can you walk us through what happened with your mom in that episode or in that, that episode in that comic strip? The, the comic I'm thinking about, is it the one where I'm, I, we're in the supermarket together and she's overriding? You're shopping. Okay. So it's a comic about me, my daughter, and my mom, and we're in the supermarket together. Sorry, I call her mom, but she's my mum because I'm British. But anyway, I've been in America too long. So anyway, my mother and I and my daughter, who was, I think, nine at the time, we're in the supermarket. And my daughter's grabbing all the candy, and my mum is allowing it. She's like, I'll buy you this, you know, I'll get this big bag of candy. And completely overriding my parental limits, right? And so I can feel myself getting, like, really annoyed at my mom, Like, she's not respecting my parents will she's not respecting my parents limits because it's not okay to be annoyed with her I kind of find myself turning into this kind of cold non-reactive version of myself where it's like I'm not bothered by anything I'm just cold and kind of calm and shut down but I'm the grown-up in the room and this is this feeling follows me all the way through like checking out the groceries and like back in the car I'm, I'm sat in the car with my daughter and my mom is taking you know the, the shopping cart back to the to the corral and I'm just like talking to myself, like, you know, it's like I can feel myself getting like really annoyed. And then I feel myself getting like really cold and shut down with her. And I don't want to be like this. I want to have access to my heart and to be able to speak freely. And so I just did a little bit of work with that, that cold computing part of myself. Like, could you please like step back? And that part said, I can't because, you know, your anger is like a bottomless pit. And it was like, oh, is that is that how I really feel? Because I don't think it's true. I don't think my anger is this bottomless pit. I think I'm just a bit pissed off, you know, a bit annoyed. But that is the case. It's just my, you know, the mother bear part of me. Like I want to protect my kid and my mom's like trying to be a, you know, she's trying to be like a generous grandmother. And as soon as I could like recognize, it's okay. It's just these parts of me that have taken over. It's, you know, I don't have to identify with the story they're telling me. And once I could do that, it's like I can breathe again, you know? It's like, okay, I've just, I've recognized the story I'm telling myself and I'm just dropping it, you know? I think at the end of that comic, I quote Pima Chodron, who's another amazing teacher. Yeah, to feel the feelings and drop the story, I think is the quote. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. One thing that stood out to me, thank you for sharing that. And and that process, though, is work. It's mm. it's sometimes some heavy lifting there. And you noted in the little highlight of the comic, I so get so tired of these internal battles, like another part yeah. of you is like, oh, another internal battle. And I think that's also something I commonly hear from people too. Mm. Can you can you talk a little bit more about your rumble with internal battles and how you've come to peace with looking in versus, oh, something else that's noisy and within. Yeah, I can pick an example of that. It's kind of a dark example, Great. but I think it's worth talking about because I think um, it's kind of a gendered thing as well. So, I mean, it's, it's circling back to anger and how I grew up with, you know, with my mom and she's a Jehovah's Witness, so she's a very strict Christian. And in her worldview, it's not okay to be angry. And so I mm. grew up in a house where no one would ever yell at each other but there were all these like feelings under the surface, you know, like people would get annoyed at each other all the time, but we can't ever express it, you know. And so when I when I started my second therapist, I call her Sally in the work that I do. So I went to a female IFS therapist after about 18 months into the process. And we did purely IFS together for like nine months. And I kind of told her that I had a dream about my mom and I was just like so angry at her, like furious, like I'd never been in my, in my real life. And she was like, oh, that's great. Let's let's work with this. And so we did a lot of work about anger together. And 
you know, I, I kind of like Googled like anger because I didn't really understand it. And all the resources I would get, like anger and therapy, it's like, you know, how not to be angry. And I was like, well, no, how do you get angry when you never let yourself feel it, when it's not okay to be angry? And so, you know, I actually ended up accessing my anger, like in therapy. And it was like such a powerful, like protective cleansing force. Like this is nothing to be scared of. This is a natural part of me that um, it kind of protects me from danger. And so I'd for years thought of anger as like, just it's not okay to be angry. Not realizing that anger like serves a purpose in emergencies. No one ever taught me that, you know, I had to like go to therapy to, to work that out. Um, I so yeah, topic- yeah, a real mis- a misunderstood emotion that um, I was never educated in, you know. It is. It, and it's, I, I think, particularly for women, mm-hmm. whether it's it's not okay to be angry. And if you show it, what were the fears that you had if anger came up? What were the fears, <laughs> according to this rule that you mm-hmm. were living by, that would, if, if you did show, what was at stake if you did show your anger? What did you at least believe? was at stake I'm not even sure I got that far like with with anger I was scared that it was a bottomless pit so if I let myself get angry there'd be no end to it so that was one fear uh, yeah and then you know like not knowing where it would lead and then I had this big fear of like ruining everything you know like well especially with my mother like I mean she lives in England I live in America I get to, I've not seen her like throughout the pandemic and when we do get to see each other it's these two-week vacations and I feel like if I let myself get angry I'm just going to ruin the whole vacation that's her airfare wasted this is our limited time together wasted so you know you push your anger away and what do you have it's like you have like I'm not going to be real with anybody instead and so (laughs) it's not really a great trade-off if I can just you know acknowledge my anger I don't have to I don't have to go with it I don't have to yell at anyone I just need to sort of like get quiet for a minute and just it's like okay I feel really annoyed I can be with it and that's okay and then when I come back out it's like okay it's anger acknowledged but you know no one's I've not lashed out at anybody I've not smacked anybody everything's fine but you know just acknowledging the truth it's like that situation made me feel a bit angry you know it's okay yeah and I think we still have an we still have a lot of polarities around anger too Mm. like don't be too angry, you know, and don't show it or we don't, especially around gender too. Yeah. So presenting, especially presenting as female, it's, you know, don't, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And then we let a lot pass for those who present as male, but that energy is a little bit more, there's more permission around that. And so, so many women that I've worked with over the years have just suppressed that anger mm-hmm. yeah, and kept that small and it's taken a toll on their health their mm-hmm. physical health, yeah. their emotional and their relational health. So for you, when anger shows up, it is just a bit of a YOU turn, the U turn and acknowledging it. And what happens to the anger when you acknowledge it? Um, what happens to the anger when I acknowledge it? You know, I kind of, I feel kind of present with myself. It's like, it's okay. That, <laughs> that was a situation that, you know, not everything was correct in it. Again, I mean, I have, I have a way, I have a story that have shared in comics that does get very dark. And if you're comfortable with sharing it, I'm, I can't. Oh, yes. Okay. So when I finally let myself like get angry in therapy, not angry, I wasn't angry at my therapist, but just the anger was present and we worked with it together through IFS. And it actually like involves my mother. My mother was, when she was 13, she was, she, she was like sexually attacked by a family member and when I was 13 in real life, my mother kind of stopped parenting me. That's how it felt, you know, like she stopped doing my laundry. She stopped making meals for me. I had to really look after myself. And she was out at work, work working really long hours. 
I felt as a 13-year-old that she didn't really want to sort of be around me. And that came up in therapy. It was very difficult. But I really felt so much anger towards my mother's attacker. And this is, you know, like I should, right? My mom had told me that, you know, that she'd been raped and I would never, um, I'd used it as a way to understand her. Like, oh, well, that's why she's so religious, right? That's why she became a Christian when she was a teenager. But I'd never actually let myself engage with it and feel the feelings like surrounding that. Like, how did it feel that that happened to my mother? And, you know, I was the mother of a daughter at this point. And I was just so furious and so angry at her abuser. And that is like, that's, that anger was so good to feel. It was so right to feel. Mm. And it was very healing, you know, because that, you know, that guy who did that to her, he didn't just, he didn't just hurt her. You know, he hurt her daughter, he hurt me as well. And so it was yeah. this legacy burden. I mean, it was some, a couple of things were happening. It was me acknowledging my anger towards my mother that went back to when I was a teenager, right? Because I felt like she neglected me. But then it went so much deeper because there is a story behind it. And it's a really heavy thing to share. And thank you for letting me share it. It's something I write about in my comics. And this kind of thing happens in our world so much. And these legacy burdens are kicked down the road. The part of the reason I want to write about it and part of the reason I got permission from my mom to talk about this stuff and to write about this stuff is because it's surrounded in so much shame that we never do talk about it. And these, you know, these traumatic experiences are just like kicked on down the road to the next generation and the next, you know? Um, and until we can like talk about it, we won't be able to heal it. You know, it's like, if you can't say what hurts, you can't heal it, right? And so I was finally able to say what hurt and there was a lot of healing to be had there. And it's, you know, it's changed everything. It's changed my relationship to my mother. Um, we have such a great relationship now. We're, we're such different people, but we're also so similar in so many ways. And it's such a generous thing that she's let me share this very personal, private thing of hers. Um, but like, what a healing thing, like what a gift, you know? Unfortunately, this, you know, like one in three women is gonna be at some point in their life, be a victim of like sexual violence, you know? So this, this happens in our world. And it really is a taboo I want to break because healing is possible and I found it. And that's why I kind of make this work. You know, there's like a bigger, impetus to it. I want people to know that there is another side to it, you know. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And even modeling that you got permission to mm. share the story from, you know, your mom's part of the story. And I think it's so important. You know, a lot of leaders sometimes are like, oh, that's that's too much. That's not that's that's not professional. That's not about work. But just circling back even to the anger, when we're dealing with our own anger, even in in our work zone or the anger of others. There, it's rooted to something. And yeah. if we don't have compassion and respect for righteous anger, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or righteous, and even though it might be connected to things and it, we label it as unprofessional or, you know, not mature or emotionally mature and all these different labels that we pathologize or shame, we can have compassion. Doesn't mean we don't have boundaries mm-hmm. <laughs> around right. these things, but we can then hold space for these, the, for, for hard conversations, yeah. for boundaries to be set and on a personal and professional, level, but mostly personal level to be healed. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, if we can't speak the shame, it can't be healed. Mm-hmm. It just can't. Right. And so the stigma around this, it, I'm with you because my, my clinical 18 years of clinical work focused on trauma has shown me this and right. people spending so much time trying to show the world I'm fine. Right. 
uh, but slowly, slowly dying inside. Right. And, and, and so yeah, this, yeah. yeah. And we also keep having these public reckonings, like the Me Too movement mm. was a public reckoning, really triggering for me. It kind of brought a lot of stuff up for me, brought things up for my coworkers at the time. And, you know, the fact that people who are not trauma informed and not sensitive would have opinions about Christine Blasey Ford. And for somebody who's been through that themselves, hearing like, you know, looks like some Oof. guy off the, speak, the street give their opinion on this woman being a liar or whatever. How does that feel, you know? So because we keep having these public reckonings, I think it's really important that we sort of start to have a language to, to talk about these things. And, you know, IFS is such an incredible gift because you can, you can really start to sort of speak for those parts of you without being completely like enmeshed in the feelings, you know? So it's such a wonderful tool and something that people really need because these public reckonings are going to keep happening, you know, they're not going anywhere. Yeah. yeah. It's someone I work with is based in um, Minneapolis, which is my, where mm. I grew up actually. And in the recording of this, just this week, we had the verdict on the murder of George Floyd okay. and the and what this, this person shared is their boss let them end work a couple hours early so they could collectively at work, watch the verdict Mm-hmm. and and just connect with each other and then go home if they needed to or just have space to connect. And I thought that is such a beautiful example of, of trauma-informed leadership, right? right? It wasn't about unpacking this. It, I mean, obviously they're at the epicenter and the energy back home in my home state was palpable. It was across the country, mm-hmm. but at the epicenter of of this horrible crime. And, and just to see that that was given the space and that offered more connection and community because instead of just brushing by saying that's not a work thing. Right. And so on as these public reckonings, like you so wisely said, will continue to happen. How do we want to handle And if we're not comfortable with anger or any other emotions that we've deemed difficult or bad, mm-hmm. um, it's going to impact. It's only going to further cause pain towards right. ourselves. And right. the, those in our personal and professional life. So thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, you know, I'm curious for you, how does working through your emotions through your art mm-hmm. help you better lead yourself? It is an amazing organizational tool. Now I used to work in libraries and so I love, you know, I'm like an organized person by nature, but when it came to my emotions, they felt like such a tangle, you know, until I found like therapy and IFS where I'd actually be able to start like naming some of the stuff and seeing them as parts of myself. Such a helpful way of organizing what's going on inside when it feels like a mess. And similarly, when I draw, it kind of untangles me. You know, it's a very calming thing to do for one. You're connecting your your hand and your eye and, and your heart. You know, Brene Brown has this great thing about, you know, all this work we do, how do we make it real? You, how do we bring it down to our hearts? And she said, through creativity. And I think she's spot on, like, yeah, it's a meditative thing, like drawing. And when I can sort of represent what's going on inside me, you know, suddenly I look back and it's like, oh, I've got a map of where I've been. And when I look back at my body of work, it's like, I do. Like, I have a map of, like, all the work I've done. I've had points where, like, I felt really low and I've just, like, looked back at some of my old comics and they've, they've really given me a boost. Like, I needed to read that for myself today. I needed to remember that, you know? So... Yeah, it's an incredible tool. And I feel like when I've drawn something, I really understand it then. Like it really makes sense to me, you know. I love that quote you referenced from Brene Brown. We have to move through things from our head to our heart to right. our hands. Mm-hmm. It's like that energy has to move out. And for you, it's it's through comics. Mm-hmm. Others that may be drawing, journaling, music, yeah, 
And sometimes it's just moving their bodies. It mm-hmm. could be through dan- dance or for me, it's often just a good workout. I right, have to just right. go into a yeah. really hard, but there's something to be said about using our hands in a different way, nonverbal way that is really deeply connected to how we can best lead ourselves into healing. It also connects to childhood as well. I mean, you know, all children draw. Mm. I think about the age of eight, we stop drawing because we're told by teachers, you can draw and you're not very good, you know? And so it's something that a lot of people let go of. And I'm fortunate that I never let go of that. You know, I've always, I've always kept drawing. And it really does. It connects you. The, I mean, if you look at picture books, you know, it's how we make sense of the world at a very early age. And comics are not so different to that, you know? I just make work for grown-ups, not for children, because I'm making work for myself, you know? Yeah, it is amazing how much we have had creativity kind of shut down. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's like there's these rules that that's a kid thing and that's a grown up thing versus we've really lost touch with play and creativity right. for sure. And we need to reclaim that for our own health and leadership. Definitely. There, there's actually, for those people listening to this who are on Facebook, there is actually an IFS parts group, um, parts arts group. So it's for people who want to like draw or represent their parts somehow. And it's not just drawing there's kind of like people making things out of sculpture and clay and all kinds of like visual representations of of their inner systems and it's such an incredible group it's very worth checking out I'm going to make sure to put that in the show notes. I just heard about that the other yeah. day. Like, no way. I was, I was there right at the beginning. Now it's like over a thousand people. So it's really a vibrant group. It's wonderful. Oh, so that's powerful. So were you part of one of the founders of this group or did you I just I think I was just an early invitee. Early doctor. Seth Cobalt who kind of like founded it. He's a good friend now through IFS. So yeah. There's def- it's such a big part of IFS too is creativity. It's mm-hmm. one of the attributes of self-leadership. Right, right. And that creativity isn't just ec- external expression. Sometimes it's just being creative, how we connect with our system and sometimes using art or yeah. some aspect of creativity is essential. That's a really good point. And I often kind of overlook that sea of, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to remember the eight C's for myself. Like creativity is the one I always like can never remember. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> to me. it's like, what's the last one? It's like, oh, it's creative. Creativity. Yeah, that's right. But I, I am so connected to creativity when I draw and like, you know, make comics about my work that I feel like it is getting more self energy into my system. So yeah, I'm very fortunate. It's definitely grounding and, and neuroscience and so much studies have shown that head, heart, hand mm-hmm. integration is really powerful just to being present and taller. And it's hard to be present these days. Yeah. And there's a lot going on. And I, I, you mentioned earlier that you're not from the States, you're from the UK, mm-hmm. and you now live in the Midwest or the South. I guess it depends on who you talk to. In Minnesota, we considered Missouri the Midwest, but I guess Missouri is someone considers it the we South. Cons- I don't know. We consider ourselves the Midwest, yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. just checking. So I'd love for you to share what's been like for you living in the US as we navigate so much mm-hmm. culturally and politically. That's a good question. Um, it's... You know, like one thing about living in the U.S. is that it kind of like makes me see my own culture kind of like differently. Having that space, it, you know, it kind of like makes me, especially because my husband's American and he, you know, we we'll watch a lot of British shows together. And it's like trying to understand my country from a distance in order to sort of tell him about it. Um, and it's funny because, you know, like America, 
kind of quite loves British culture and like stuff like The Crown. Like I had everybody who's asking me, did I watch The Crown? It's like, no. <laughs> and then I, I finally did watch it. And I could see, you know, what everyone was so obsessed by. It's like, oh, this is really good. But, you know, like the way Meghan Markle was kind of like treated by sort of the American press and how she is treated by the British press back home. I actually, that raised a lot of trailheads for me, just as a random example. But just about how women are treated, even princesses, right? But if you're trying to find your own role, you're going to get like slapped down publicly. And I was like, oh, wow, that's something I've internalized, you know, like I'm starting to be successful with my comics and I'm kind of like waiting for this little cosmic slapdown or public slapdown that hasn't come yet. But, you know, it happened to Meghan Markle. It happened to Princess Di. It's going to come for me soon. And it's like, wow, I've really internalized that. And I had no idea. And it was only living in America and sort of seeing the difference between how two countries like respond to somebody that it's kind of like showing me things like that. So it teaches me things about myself. More broadly speaking, living in America has made me, it's really made me face some things that I thought were not my problem, right? And that's been quite, that's been quite the trailhead. One of the things I've been looking at is like my family history. I had an aunt who died a couple of years ago and she, she was very much into genealogy and she'd given me lots of birth certificates and like documentation about our family. She kind of passed it on to me, you know? And this this kind of connects, I promise. So, you know, thinking about how right now we're really having like a public discourse about about like Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matters. And I've been reading Resma Manikin's My Grandmother's mm. Hands. And I've been reading it really Excellent. yeah, I've been reading it really slowly because it's there's like oh, there's exercises to you work. Need to. Yeah. 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 And so one of the exercises he asks white people to do in that book is to actually look at your own ancestry and sort of see what kind of like legacy burdens you're kind of like bringing and it was really interesting when I sat with this I sat with that exercise I kind of like just you know I kind of like had this realization that my great great grandfather he was he worked in a textile factory in Wakefield in Yorkshire and so dealing with dealing with cotton from America and jute from India so you know globalization even in the end of the 1800s right and there are photographs of the factory he worked in online and the, the photographs from Wakefield um, Museum, they show lots of child laborers like working alongside fully grown men. So boys of eight. And I began to realize, well, this was my grandfather too, right? My great, great grandfather too. Like, why would he be the exception? Of course, he was a child laborer as well. He was from a poor family. And so this is in my, this is in my history. The fact that I came from a society that would put eight year olds to work in, you know, textile factories and we all know that's not right. I mean, I'm sure my grandfather knew that that was not right, but it was how the world was. And like right now we're dealing with the sort of legacy of like slavery. It's like the same, it was so connected. You know, I can't help but see the connection of the, the sort of the oppressed white people who were living under this system that would put children to work. And of course that same, that same system would like enslave black people. Like it didn't, care you know the system didn't care and it really is the intersection of like class and race and it's alive in me and I've got you know black friends who are dealing with the legacy of slavery it's it's very complicated and it's also like it's alive in all of us like we're all dealing with these legacy burdens and I think Resma Menekin is so wise to get people to recognize their their European roots of being you know kind of oppressed people and also like oppressors because People would migrate over here and like stand by and let, you know, let lynchings happen, that kind of thing. This is all in our history and it all really needs reckoning with, you know, it needs, it needs acknowledging. 
think it's really powerful because one of one of the common deflections of protective response is often said, well, that was then. I'm not, I, I didn't do that back then. So I'm not responsible today. So don't hold me responsible. But this piece of legacy burdens that we do, we do carry on these generational mm-hmm. burdens, whether we're aware of it or not, we're carrying that in our stories and that in, in our lives, in our bodies. And that impacts how we show up in our families and our work. It impacts how, what we value impacts how we do or don't humanize mm-hmm. people, yeah. um, even, even history. Right. And what you said stood out to me. I lived overseas for about four years and dang, that was an, a, the biggest takeaway, one of the biggest takeaways of that time, obviously exciting time learning about other cultures and being immersed in another culture. I lived in Switzerland, so it was okay. amazing, mm-hmm. but also was seeing my country in a way I never had before too, to have that perspective and go, oh, and to see how the world saw my country and right. my, my culture and to reckon with that was hard and important and has impacted impacted me immensely so getting out of our culture mm-hmm. is offers such an important uh, perspective for sure yeah it's like you're not you're not probably weren't seen as an American until you moved to Switzerland and I wasn't really seen as a British person until I moved to America you know you kind of become <laughs> you become that a little bit yeah, and the assumptions mm-hmm. folks had about what what I believed and what I valued and 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 what they valued about my culture it was interesting. Mm-hmm. It was so yeah. And, and and this is such a big country. There's so many right, nuances right. To, to the states. But yeah, it it was important. It was an important lesson and and rum, rumble for me at that season of my life. So I'm grateful mm-hmm. to have had it and I appreciate you bringing that up to have that perspective on our history, on our story that Maybe sometimes we don't have that unless we step out of it and look in. It's important. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you and follow your work? How can people find you and connect? I have a website, which is um, ifscomics.com. That's H-T-T-P-S, ifscomics.com. I also am on social media. So I'm on Instagram and Facebook. I think it's at Mardu Draws on Instagram and at Sasha Mardu on Facebook. And you can just Google me as well, Mardu Comics. (laughs) (laughs) Plenty will come up. So Wonderful. We'll make sure to have all of that in the show notes. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for showing up, not just here today, but the way that you do online. The world is a little braver, a little more calm and a little more connected because of of you daring to show up and share your heart and your journey. So thank you very much. Wow, that's such a lovely thing to say. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Identifying and expressing righteous anger offers us powerful data. And when it goes undetected and unexpressed, it turns toxic, making us sick physically, emotionally, relationally. This is true for most of our difficult emotional experiences, but anger is particularly tricky. Owning and expressing our anger has been weighed down by systems and messaging that have complicated how we show up in our work and life and also how we heal. We want to bypass it, stuff it, deny it, which only fuels our anger more. Sasha walked us through a comic she drew demonstrating how she uses IFS to identify and befriend her anger. She shows us how we can witness our pain inner conflicts, and process healing in a way that destigmatizes anger and other struggles with emotions that impact our mental well-being. The common humanity around what Sasha illustrated gives courage to us all. Now, what's your relationship with the emotion of anger? And how do you feel about showing your anger? 
What messages and experiences keep you from befriending your anger and instead hiding it or denying it? Now remember, anger is not your enemy. It's our relationship and response to it that can take us out. Do the work to befriend and lead your anger and notice the impact you have on your own personal well-being along with those around you. Leading is hard and leading is also controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries, especially when anger shows up. Now, navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence and clarity and calm. You do not mind making hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex, polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free unburdened leader resources along with ways to sign up for my email and work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. And if this episode was impactful to you, please leave a review and share it with someone who you think will benefit from it. Thank you so much.